Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And I'd like to begin today's podcast by thanking Carl L. for his recent donation to the salon to help cover some of the expenses associated with these podcasts. Your donation, along with past donations by other fellow saloners, is what keeps us going. So thank you very much, Carl. Now, let me ask you what you think that it takes to be called a psychedelic elder these days. Well, today's guest speaker, Dr. George Greer, has a credential that I think is hard to beat. While he is the medical director and a co-founder of the Hefter Research Institute, in my opinion, his credentials for being an elder go back much farther than that. You see, back in the 1980s, when MDMA was still legal, George not only treated some of his patients with MDMA, he actually synthesized it himself in Sasha Shulgin's laboratory. <laughs> and in all of the years since then, he's uh, remained directly involved in psychedelic research. Now, to me, that is an elder. Additionally, George has been attending the Burning Man Festival for a really long time. Although I knew about George and his work before my first trip to a burn, it was at Burning Man in 2002 that I first met him. It was my first time on the playa, and I was like a little boy in a candy shop as I took in all of the new sights and sounds that you encounter there. And I was still getting used to seeing people in all kinds of costumes. So, when my wife walked up to me with this tall, distinguished-looking man who was wearing a Roman toga and had a crown of laurel leaves on his head, well, I just assumed that was some person that she'd just met. Not so. It was George Greer who will forever remain etched in my mind as a Roman senator. <laughs> so, now let's join George for his fourth Palenque Norte lecture, which he delivered at this year's Burning Man Festival, and this is also his fourth appearance here in the salon. So, my name's George Greer. I'm a psychiatrist. I live in Santa Fe, New Mexico. I'm the medical director of the Hefter Research Institute, formed 24 years ago. Uh, just a little about myself, I had some paradigm-shifting personal experiences in my college years, studied Eastern religion and mysticism, was inspired in an enhanced moment to become a psychiatrist, went to medical school, became a psychiatrist, uh, went to a uh, six-week Stan Groff workshop at Esalen in 1975 when I was in medical school, which was... a a changer also um, you know there was a professional way to work with with uh, psychedelic medicine and studied transpersonal psychology and uh, and when I finished my residency in uh, San Mateo California uh, starting offering ketamine sessions because it was a legal drug and then heard about this drug MDMA which was not it was just hardly known, and, and a person I know, Leo Zeff, was using it in therapy, so I studied with him and was trained by him and found a legal way to give it to my patients if I made it myself. So I made it in Sasha Shulkin's lab and started giving to people for five years, about 80 people over five years, and published a paper about just their experiences. Uh, so that was the first MDMA therapy-related paper. Those were the worried well, you know, people without any serious problems. Um, and that stopped in 85. And um, and then in 93, uh, Dave Nichols founded the Hefter Research Institute, and I was part of the founding group. And we started out, uh, we had no money, but trying to do research and support research. And we did that for, been doing that ever since. And uh, a lot of basic science, neuroscience in Switzerland, uh, University Hospital Zurich with Franz Vollenweider. Um, and then the first, uh, the first psychedelic treatment study in this country was for obsessive compulsive disorder in Arizona and started around 2000. And then um, soon after that, around 
that decade, the 2000s, uh, Charlie Grobe did the first uh, psilocybin study for cancer patients with depression and anxiety, just 12 people. And about 10 years ago, the NYU Johns Hopkins team started their larger clinical trials, uh, cancer and uh, depression and anxiety. And those were published last December, got amazing publicity, front page of the New York Times. And uh, and then concurrently, the last few years, a, a, board, a board member of ours, Bill Linton, a philanthropist, founded the USONA Institute. And so now Hefter has done like sort of research, and USONA is doing drug development. So they're doing going to take uh, psilocybin through FDA approval, and they're in the middle of all that. So that's a brief uh, nutshell history. And I'll just uh, right now describe very current recent uh, research studies that are going on that have been published recently, sort of the current uh, state of what's going on uh, with Hefter and the other things I know about. So, uh, so Hefter's role has shifted because we're like just pure research. We're not drug development, et cetera. So our focus now is mostly addiction, psilocybin for addiction treatment. And uh, there were two pilot studies with uh, smokers and alcoholics, 15 people, and they did amazingly well, much better than we thought, like 80% reduction in smoking and two-thirds reduction in drinking. And so now there's large clinical trials where you have like a placebo group and uh, a psilocybin group, so it's the whole standard scientific model uh, to demonstrate to the, how the scientific community thinks that this can help treat uh, illness, psychiatric illness. And uh, so they're both about a third or so way through uh, alcohol at NYU and smoking at Johns Hopkins. And uh, it's looking good. You know, we don't know who's in which group technically, but we can tell the difference between someone getting Benadryl as opposed to psilocybin. You can kind of guess, you know. And uh, the smoking study is just a nicotine patch versus a lot of therapy uh, for smokers in, in, in a psilocybin session. And then we're helping fund a, a study in University of Alabama, Birmingham, on cocaine addiction. And that's, the university provided most of the funds for that. We just helped a little. But that's really interesting because this is a very different demographic from the Hopkins NYU studies, which are mostly Anglo-Saxon, European descent people, uh, middle class, in Alabama, there's a lot of poor African-American living in crack houses, you know, elementary school education, very, very different kind of population. And that's interesting because they're using the music playlist of all this romantic classical music that they use at Johns Hopkins, been used for decades. And they're having mystical experiences and turning their lives around, you know, moving out of the crack house, getting some benefits to start going to school or working, you know, and it's just, and they have these spiritual experiences. And uh, just a little anecdote uh, and a follow-up, one of the, it was a man, and he's like, well, what did you learn? It's like, well, you know, I used to like, you know, drive down the street and look at women, you know, and like, hey, you know, check her out and stuff. And now it's like, you know, just, just be cool, man. Don't do that. Just be cool. So, so they've appropriated that experience into their own culture. Um, and then there was a, uh, uh, a woman, alcoholic woman in New Mexico where they did the alcohol pilot and I had the privilege of interviewing her, which was mostly just letting her talk on camera. And this video is up on the hefter.org website. So she's a middle-aged Hispanic woman, very normal kind of person. She was raised in a she called it. She called it a Christian cult. Like her mother made all her clothes and highly rigid, uh, fundamentalist Christian cult. And and then she left that and got away from it. And she studied. She studied other things, other spirituality, religions, and found a lot of value in those things. And she just insidiously started drinking more, and it just was in just like every day. And kind of, she was going to try to get her husband in the study. But she talked about it, and it turns out she qualified in terms of having alcohol uh, use disorder. And she didn't really think of herself that way. But she realized she'd really just gotten kind of distant from her children and just not connected. So her first psilocybin session, she basically cried for four hours or so. She could not 
in, in her experience, contact her children. She couldn't reach them, and it felt like months. She's just, I've lost my children. It was just devastating in how she screwed up her life, and she felt guilty and ashamed, and it was not a happy experience. And then a couple of weeks later, she had her second session, and there were, like, colors and joy, and she felt like she was in the presence of what she called God, and that this God is is the one true God of all spiritual traditions. It's not any locked in any particular religion. And um, she said, that's where I'm going, and I'm taking my kids with me. And she stopped drinking. I interviewed her about 14 months after this. She No more alcohol. And instead of going to AA, she actually got m- more involved in her, her evangelical church in Albuquerque, which was not not the rigid fundamentalist kind of church she'd grown up in like, like cultists. Just, you know, we're, we're saved, and, and that's her community, and helped her maintain her sobriety. And, and my, she's very articulate. My sense was that she's really more American and apple pie than she was before psilocybin. And I was, you know, I've had this paranoia, this worry that, okay, people will take well, like in the 60s, a lot of young people took LSD and left their parents' religious traditions, you know, mostly Protestant or whatever, and, and that disrupted families, created a generation gap. It was, it was very traumatic to families, and the fact that she had the experience was cured, at least as far as you know, from being alcohol addiction and not being a good parent, um, to reconnecting with her own religion. In other words... The psilocybin mystical, mystical experience did not make her change her religion. She didn't become a Hindu or a Buddhist or a whatever. So that was very reassuring to me that it's that. And one of the things important about psychedelic experience is they are, in essence, ideologically neutral. You know, there's no ideology in the drug. It's just a drug. And it's the mindset and the mindset of the therapist that's really important. And we take a lot of care to to not um, promote or use conceptual frameworks from a certain religion or tradition to that could sort of brainwash someone into that religion. It's very, and it's, it's delicate. It's very important to keep it neutral in that way so that they can believe whatever they want. You know, we just want to help them get well. And there was another really interesting thing that happened to this woman. She, um, after the second session, her sister picked her up. She went to her house. And the son, he sounds kind of autistic. He just never was affectionate. He's like four or five and wouldn't really be affectionate. And so at the end of the day, she goes up and he goes over and he kind of sits down next to her. And she goes like, oh, wow, well, that's different. You know, then he kind of like puts her hand, you know, in her, in her lap. And then he like lets her embrace him and hug him. And she and her sister are going like, we've never seen him like this before. And I have no explanation for that, you know, but it was just a really cool effect that she was just in the connecting mode, which she hadn't been with her children. And then uh, her children said, uh, like, she was playing with them. She said, like, wow, Mom, you're like, you're like playing with us, you know, playing football. She says, oh, I play with you. It's like, yeah, but you never ran before. And so her whole connection with her playing with her children just was renewed and that's it was just so uh to me personally it was very inspiring because alcohol is just such a horrible you know horrible condition that affects parent-child relationships dwis you know etc so from my perspective this alcohol study is probably the most important study that we will ever do because that's such a horrible uh scourge on our on our society huh Sure, yeah, so I'll, it's, it's pretty much the same as all of So basically, for the treatment studies, there's first screening, you know, to make sure you don't have a psychiatric or medical problem that could get worse with psilocybin, like a family member with psychosis or, or bipolar disorder. And then, and then several hours of therapeutic preparation, uh, connecting with the therapist, the guides, and a trusting relationship, you know, what's your intention, your purpose. And then the session is all day with the usually male-female guides. 
and then follow up what we call integration phase, which is another several hours and uh, over some weeks. And then there's, uh, you know, uh, psychometric testing, you know, outcome results, levels of depression, drinking, all this stuff, uh, different measurements that can go on usually for several months up to a year afterwards to measure the outcome. You know, how long do people stay sober? And this is true for the studies for addiction, depression, anxiety, uh, OCD, anything. That's pretty much the standard uh, protocol, and that's written up in a paper called... uh, something about hallucinogens, safety for administration, something like that, by Matt Johnson and Roland Griffiths. So that's kind of the current published sort of Bible about how to run therapeutic psilocybin sessions safely and and, and uh, effectively. And Yeah? The question is, uh, are there safety recommendations for using psychedelics regarding regarding? Yes, yeah, so, so there's two levels. Definitely first-degree relatives, parent, child, brother, sister, if have those disorders, then, then, the, then that person would not be allowed to participate in the study. Some studies require even second-degree relatives, like you know grandparents, uh, aunts, uncle, uh, uh, also excluded. It depends, depends on the study. Um, and I, let me digress for a moment on, on the safety, because just to tell a story where it, it was in a, in, a, in a recreational setting. Uh, so acquaintance of mine who's totally functional, intelligent person, worked for Microsoft for years, doing sales, you know, you know, fun, comes to Burning Man, highly functional. His sister has schizophrenia, and he was in California. He went to, uh, and his, his, his gay partner was going to meet him at the airport, and he took LSD, and he got the idea that, he needed to communicate to his partner that his plans had changed in terms of meeting at the airport, and he thought he could just give that message psychically. But to really make it work, he had to take more LSD to become more psychic. So he took more LSD and got into this whole sort of psychic uh, communication belief system, ended up, he was at his uncle's house, he, went, he took all of his clothes, went on the neighbor's property, called the police, was arrested by the sheriff naked, uh, handcuffed, um, charged with the crime, went to jail, was convicted of the crime of trespassing, trespassing indecent exposure, something like that. Um, had to not be in California for a couple of years until his probation or his parole was up. And other than that, he's a completely normal person and like out of the blue, he just had this psychotic experience on LSD that ended, affected his judgment, and he got in trouble. So, you know, it's rare, but it happens, and we just, for research, we can't take any risks of something going south like that with a person that would just really help harm the whole research movement. So I'm glad you brought up the question of safety, because we get a lot of questions, you know, is it's, how do you... People, you know, how can I take mushrooms safely or LSD safely? And, you know, we were a scientific research institute. We just have to be medical and say we, we can't really, we advise you not to do it without psychiatric screening and preparation. You know, that's, we just have to toe that, that line for safety, safety first, basically. Um, so let me just sort of continue with about describing the other studies. Um, so three addiction studies. Um, there's a study be starting soon at Yale University for obsessive compulsive disorder, bigger, uh, with using scanning, more more evolved. And that re- that researcher is camped in our camp, Ben Kalmindi, in uh, camp now over here in the corner. Um, and there's a study just started now at Yale, a completely different kind of diagnosis, psilocybin for cluster headache. And probably a lot of you read about cluster busters and LSD for and psilocybin for cluster headaches. So they actually have started treated their first subject at Yale to see if psilocybin can help prevent cluster headaches. And then Yale is also going to do a study for depression, a small study. And this, this study is actually, our motivation is more to help a young investigator get started in a research career. He's a psychiatry resident. And... Uh, so it's a small study with depression, but they're using highly sophisticated EEG biomarkers to say, okay, this biomarker 
correlates with people not getting depressed. The psilocybin changed the biomarker and improved depression or not or whatever. So it's more like learning about the basic science of depression, neurochemistry, and psilocybin's effects on it. So it's a very sort of esoteric neuroscience. But we want to help young investors start a, start a career. And these are very passionate, uh, two young, very passionate residents. And a senior researcher is uh, working with them. Uh, so that's Yale. At Johns Hopkins, in addition to the smoking study, uh, they're doing two other studies uh, that are not with patients with disorders. One is about a million-dollar study on the effects of psilocybin in long-term meditation practitioners uh, from different traditions, but they're mostly Buddhist mantra-type uh, meditators, but, you know, practice for, for 20, 30 years. And, um, and it includes fMRI scanning before uh, and after, but a lot of it is like how did the psilocybin experience affect your meditation practice itself? You know, you, did it change, help, hinder, harm, some sort of qualitative change in, in your experience in meditating? And then they do one low-dose psilocybin session, uh, probably equivalent to, say, a couple of grams of mushrooms, roughly. And they actually are scanned during, they're scanned during the psilocybin experience, doing various kinds of, so uh, just open mind meditation, loving-kindness meditation, uh, some sort of focused attention meditation, and, and what is the brain doing in those different meditative states under the influence of a low-dose psilocybin. So it's a very neuroscience-oriented meditation study. Uh, in, in Switzerland at uh, University Hospital, Franz Wollenweider, who's, who's one of our connected researchers on our board, he's done studies with Zen monks actually up in a mountain retreat in Switzerland, in their retreat, hooked up to all these EEG wires to do very, very similar kinds of studies of, you know, long-term uh, uh, Zen meditators. Pretty sure it's Zen. There's Tibetan Buddhists or Zen meditators. So he's, he's working on that. Um, and then there's a study that's happening both at Johns Hopkins University and New York University for religious professionals. And these are ministers with congregations. Uh, and they would love, they want to get ministers from different traditions. So they have, you know, plenty of rabbis, not a problem to recruit rabbis, some Christian ministers. They, of course, love to get a Muslim imam to come. They haven't found one. But if anybody knows a Muslim minister or imam or whatever who would be interested, you know, let us know because that would just be awesome to have someone from that tradition how does psilocybin affect your personal experience? What you do with your in your job as a as a minister? Your sermons, your beliefs, your effectiveness uh, at being a minister to your congregation. Um, so that's at both. Hefter's not doing that. So that's other people uh, are funding that, but it's 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 part of the same uh, research group. Um, so I think those are the main ones in the United States are happening with, with psilocybin. After we, we did some MDMA basic science research back in the 90s in Switzerland, you know, the mechanism of action and the receptors and all that in, in the Volenweider Clinic and learned about the neuroscience. And uh, our main researcher, Steve Ross, who's also camped over here uh, with us, he's at NYU. He's... He's really interesting. He's kind of the center of everything now because he's he's doing the phase three, one of the phase three studies for MDMA, for PTSD, phase three study for psilocybin for depression with and without cancer patients, religious professionals, and alcoholism. So he's he's like everywhere. And he's over here you, if you want to catch him and talk to him about that. Um. So those are the are the U.S. studies, and I'll, I'll just I'll, I'll tell I want to talk a little bit about the studies and some of the studies in Switzerland that are just sort of interesting models for of research. But I'll stop now for any comments or questions about the things I've talked about so far. Yeah. Hi, my name is Loic. I uh, you're um, t it's fascinating. I, I'm a meditator, so I'm really interested in uh, your uh, meditation and. Uh, 
I mean, those experiments. Can you can you tell about the first results? Because you well, you did, th th there's no results because they're no in the middle of doing the study. There is no nothing like that. Well, until the study's over. I mean, they're collecting data. It's just collected and stored on a computer, but there's there's no data analysis, so there's we have no results. I mean, I anecdotally, I mean, there's nothing nothing bad has happened. I mean, none of the psilocybin studies have had any what we call sig significant adverse effects, where someone is injured or harmed more than like I had a headache or I threw up or I couldn't sleep. You know, minor stuff. Or my blood pressure went up a little bit. No serious event studies, adverse events, and either either MDMA or or psilocybin research, which is great. Yeah, but no no data yet. We don't know. But they they've been, they've done fine, and some said there was a good experience, et cetera. So uh, thank you. I've got uh, two two questions. One is, um, has there been research or anecdotal work, or maybe even from your uh, clinical practice back in the eighties on? Uh, using uh, psychedelic substances for treatment of uh, personality disorder? So no. No, there is not. And, and that, but I, I can't have one, make one comment on that. Um, Johns Hopkins, uh, before they started doing the treatment research, they did, they did uh, some studies with just, quote, normal people without a disorder. And to me, it's a, you know, the most the landmark study of the past 50 years was... Uh, uh, about spirituality, just psilocybin occasioning mystical experience. And, uh, and then they did another one, uh, just sort of dose finding, like low, medium, high doses. So um, these are all non-disordered non people, you know. And uh, so they took, I don't know how many people it was total, maybe 50 or so. And they did personality testing on all these people. So they... Uh, found that just you know just looking at all the personality profiles before and after their experience one dimension of personality changed and personality dimensions just they just don't change they're just fixed it's an, it's very i'm not an expert in personality uh, science but it's very unusual that you know like your mmpi test will change that your one of these factors will change so the one that changed significantly was the factor of openness which involves uh, the opposite of rigidity, sort of open to new ideas, creativity, um, not 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 closed mind to new ideas, which is sort of like, I mean, duh, you know, to people, but it was actually scientifically documented, you know, statistically. And so that was an impressive uh, finding. You know, these people don't have disorders, but that's like their personalities were more open. And I think... At least we here would think that's good. Yeah. So, uh, and then, and then, my other, sorry, my Go other ahead. question is, uh, you know, being uh, prone to meditation or prone to religious leaderships, not in the DSM five, and so I'm kind of curious how you know, these things have to go through the FDA. Mm -hmm. And what I'm interested in is how then that allows the use of these substances in kind of non, you know, in, a, in a setting that's not pathological or it's for enhancing people that are already, you know, not, they don't have a DSM yeah. diagnosis. And yeah. how, how does that come about and what's the kind of, you know. Under the structure of current laws and regulations, it will have no effect on that directly. Yeah, so let me address that a little bit. Um, so the FDA will allow the research, you know, it's just let's, study the brain, study just basic science, what's going on. You know, they'll allow the research. Obviously, it's happened, and they're, they're happy. The FDA has been, I say, extremely friendly to this field since about 1990. Before, they were like, no, 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 no. And I was giving MDMA when it was controlled. I had a cancer patient who it relieved his pain from multiple myeloma for weeks, and I wanted to get permission to continue with him. This is like 85, and the answer was, you need more animal studies. And he was like terminally ill. So it's like around 1990, it totally changed. The door's open. It's like any other drug, you're open the door. So you can do the research. But the whole the FDA regulations for approving a drug to be sold, to be sold legally in the marketplace, it can only be sold for an indication, which means a an illness of some sort. Now, an illness, an indication may or may not be a DSM-5 diagnosis. I mean, 
they really encouraged us. We wanted to do some sort of, you know, cancer distress condition. It's like, sure, do tests, validate it. That'll take you five years. Then you'll have a condition, and then you can start your research. Like, never mind. We'll go with the DSM-5. Um, so another thing I want to say about the, the DSM-5, which is a, it's a, it's the authoritative manual of official psychiatric diagnosis published by the American Psychiatric Association. It totally dovetails with the international classification. And you say they're not in there. Basically, every, every psychiatric diagnosis requires impairment in functioning somehow. So you can be, you know, you can believe that you're from the Pleiades and if you can provide for your food, shelter, and clothing, you don't have a diagnosis because you're functioning. You know, if you, have, if you have social relationships and you can earn your living and function, you can believe whatever the hell you want to, you're not psychiatrically ill. So some people think, well, hey, you know, this is, you know, I'm not crazy and, you know, why is this diagnosis, you know, it, it's all about functioning. Uh, and so I'm being a little, I guess, defensive about psychiatry, but that's this is something that people lose sight of in terms of diagnosis. So it's not diagnosing everything that's not conformist, in other words. I have a question about uh, an observation that the mycologist Paul Stamets has been making in some of his recent talks, including at the most recent MAPS conference in Oakland this year. He has been talking about the use of a combination of psilocybin, niacin, and lion's mane mushroom for neuroregenesis and using the three in combination. And I'm curious about what your thoughts about that might yeah. be. Well, this is the first time I've heard of that. I didn't, I didn't, I wasn't at that talk. Uh, I do know that, um, I'm a little vague about this, but uh, it has, I'm pretty sure it's been measured that psilocybin, and this is just the pure molecule, not in a mushroom with all the other stuff in the mushroom, um, uh, increases the production of brain BDNF, brain-derived neurotropic factor, and that's and that when that increases, that's a marker. It correlates with recovery from depression, and so you can say, well, that means it released that factor goes up, and neurogenesis is happening just just from psilocybin by itself. But I don't know. I don't know of any study, I mean, I don't know how you would do it, you know, that there's new nerve growth because you'd have to, you know, cut the brain up and look at it. Uh, probably could be done in animals. Maybe it's been done in animals. I don't know that psilocybin improved neurogenesis. And But my question would be as a psychiatrist, well, I mean, more neurons are not necessarily better. You know, it's like more neurons where and connecting what to what. I mean, uh, with MDMA, you know, in high doses, there's this, you know, nerve terminal destruction that can happen with super high doses. But if it's cutting connections that are not helpful, well, great. You know, if you have a, if you have a connection that's got you an obsessive, an obsessive loop or an addictive loop, it's good to, like, not have that connection. So uh, it's just more is not better. But it's, it's, it's a fascinating thing. And... and uh, you know what? What the was this just sort of uh, anecdotally reported evidence from people who are using the combination, or was there some sort of research project in a journal? I mean, what you know the details of that? Or it was uh, a proposed combination that he put up as uh, a recipe in a slide during a number of talks that he gave this year, and I think where he was going with that was. Um, a proposal for more research and a mm -hmm. suggestion that this combination might be useful for age-related cognitive decline and oh. Alzheimer's patients. Oh, okay, okay. So basically based on what Paul knows about mushrooms, which is way more than all of us together many times. So this is his, his theory, his knowledge of neurochemistry and the mushrooms, how that might help. Uh, that's really interesting. You know, I... Uh, you know, some of the uh, elders, 
you know, before my generation uh, had had Alzheimer's. Uh, my teacher, Leo Zeff, had Alzheimer's. Sasha Shulgin had Alzheimer's. Uh, Myron Stolaroff had Alzheimer's. And I asked, and I'm not an expert on Alzheimer's at all, but it's like, okay, well, you know, oh, my God, oh, my God, you know, is that, or psychedelics, will they, will they cause Alzheimer's or MDMA or whatever? So uh, I asked a neurologist who is very familiar with this field about that concept. This was at the four years ago, psychedelic science, and his name will come to me because I'm starting to have age-related name forgetfulness. It started in my 20s. Uh, but he said the, the, the whole neurochemistry of Alzheimer's is more uh, the cholinergic system, acetylcholine, uh, choline enhancement, etc. And, and MDMA and none of the psychedelics do anything to that system at all, you know, directly that, that we know of. They're all the serotonin system, dopamine, uh, norepinephrine. So he was very comfortable in saying, I mean, in like, you know, Alzheimer's cognitive decline is such a pervasive thing, it's, it's not unusual at all that three people that I knew got Alzheimer's. You know, my mother got cognitive decline. So, so it, it made me assured that um, psychedelics or MDMA are, are not a cause for cognitive decline. There is research that heavy users of MDMA, most of whom are using other things recreationally, do have some reduction in verbal memory or fluency that are, it's subtle. They're still within the normal range, but you can measure a decrease. But there was a study uh, done with, this is really interesting, with uh, Mormons in Salt Lake City who were ravers. They, n- they never touched alcohol. They never touched any other drug except ecstasy. And they did neuropsych testing on them. And then someone do it a lot, you know. Completely normal. Completely normal. And then in, uh, in Switzerland, Franz Vollenweider, you know, has this super sensitive uh, scanning of, you know, radio labeling the serotonin nerve terminals are supposedly destroyed when rats get tons of MDMA. And this is just one session with 100 milligrams, you know, a therapeutic dose. No hint of any destruction of anything on that and so uh, I mean you can overdo anything and you can definitely overdo MDMA but it's still very reassuring that at the therapeutic dose levels that are being used in the research that that heal people it so far as we know is safe you know basically yeah there are some people who have taken a lot of psychedelic particularly MDMA and who say it doesn't work for me anymore uh, I think Ann Shulgin is one of those. And has anybody tried to study what changes cause it to not work after X amount of use? Uh, no, there's t- t- in terms of like recreational use over years or something. Right. Yeah. No, that I've never seen a paper studying recreational users or why it doesn't work or like, okay, I've used ecstasy for five or ten years and bring them into the lab, give them MDMA and measure there. That has not been done that I know of, but but it's a common story, yeah, and it's it's very common that like, oh, my first MDMA experience was like, and and nothing ever quite was like the first one, you know, which is I mean novelty is impressive, you know, your first Burning Man is like, oh my God, so uh, clearly more research is needed, you know, of course, so but I don't know. Well, so so screening is probably more human hours are spent in screening patients than preparing them and treating them in the study. I mean, it's common to screen 20 people for every one subject who actually gets in the study. So you start with uh, usually a phone interview, just basic questions, and then if they pass that, an in-person interview. And, and what they do is, uh, for, for these treatment studies, the standard is, is the... Uh, the clinical interview for DSM-5, structured clinical interview for DSM-5, SCID. And so basically it's a structured interview covering every psychiatric diagnostic category and sort of a, you know, if you have this, you know, it's like a menu thing, then check out this. If you say you're depressed, then check all the symptoms for depression. So, and you, and you check in, 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 the, in the, the, uh, the DSM-5, it's like it's cookbook if you have, you know, five of these ten symptoms or whatever, then you are officially have major depression so it's totally structured 
yes, no screening. And, and it's done by psychiatrists, um, almost always psychiatrists, maybe psychologists sometimes. So, so it's a very rigid categorizing of people. But anybody can apply and say, hey, I want to be in the study. You know, they can be referred by therapists. Uh, and so uh, definitely in recruiting is by far the rate-limiting factor in getting the research done. And it was very hard to find cancer patients willing to take psilocybin uh, until a lot of the videos and the media got out that it was really helping cancer patients, and then the recruiting sped up. But it, it took 10 years to do these two studies for, to get 80 patients, you know, from conception to publication. So we're hoping it'll go much faster uh, now that all the media is out there and et cetera. So that, does that answer your question about... Mm-hmm. Hi. Hi. Uh, you've already addressed this a little bit, um, but I wondered if um, you had anything more to say on MDMA and uh, potential toxicity of MDMA. Um, so you had that Mormon study, which uh, the what the Mormon the Mormon study the Mormon ravers. Oh, I didn't. Um, I didn't have more to say about it. No, but well, I can ask answer your y- questions. Yeah. So my my, my question was uh, just: is it is it more of a settled question now? Um, because I, I know at one point it was pretty, it was controversial, and there's, there was kind of conflicting yeah. evidence. Uh, I would say there are definitely lots of people for whom they think MDMA will, recreational use or therapeutic use could cause neurotoxicity. I guess there's a, a British researcher, Andrew Parrott, who's sort of the the, the lead person on that mission. Uh, that you know MDMA is bad for you, or it could be bad for you. You shouldn't use it therapeutically. So no, it's not. It's not universally accepted that, that MDMA is safe for your brain in at therapeutic levels or frequency. Uh, but I would say, well, most people just don't care. You know, it's just it's just a minor issue. They're not involved in that kind of research, and and it's just it's a small narrow field involved in that. But the the people who are uh, think it's dangerous. In other words, I haven't heard of any of those people who are sort of championing that who were convinced by the Mormon study. Or or the or the the Swiss pet study because it's you know that's just that's the culture of science yeah <laughs> thank you mm-hmm. of scientists yeah. well let me just touch on uh, in Switzerland they uh, they just do all kind of amazing conceptual studies with psilocybin um, you know the one was binocular rivalry where if you see uh, an image where you get your right eye gets stripe lines this way, your left eye this way, your brain, they can measure, you know, which, which one you're attending to, and it goes back and forth, and, and it changes at some frequency. It can vary, and it's usually r- sort of random changing back and forth. With LSD, it became more of a, a, a rhythmic changing back and forth of this binocular rival. But it's like, what does it mean? Who knows? Uh, some people, I, I'm not sure this was proven, but the, some people were able to see both at the same time, you know, which is like you can hold conflicting concepts in your mind at the same time. So that was cool. But uh, about a year ago, there was a study uh, in Switzerland on social exclusion, how psilocybin affected the experience of being ex- socially excluded. And so what they set up, they set up a video. It was like an interactive uh video presentation and there's two people playing and you're on have some visors on there's two people throwing a ball and playing catch and sometimes they throw it to you and you throw it back to them and so in one condition they keep throwing it back to you in another condition after a while they just stop throwing you the ball so you're excluded from their interaction and so they did that with people on psilocybin and off psilocybin and then measured their, their, their subjective experience and what their brains are doing, et cetera. So the people on psilocybin had less of an experience of being socially excluded than the people who were not on psilocybin. They, weren't, they didn't feel so abandoned. And, you know, being socially connected, I think, we all think, is, is a good thing. And not to, um, you know, get angry at people who aren't throwing you the ball. Um, so the, the kind of research models that psilocybin can be applied to are, you know, it's just all over the place. I was just, um, and for the future, uh, uh, 
addiction specialist at University of Wisconsin is working on opioid addiction. And that's a tricky addiction to treat because if, if people stop using opiates entirely, and I'm sure you know about this, Annie, and if they suddenly relapse, they're no longer tolerant, and they use as much or even half the dose they used before, they can die because they're so sensitive to the opiates again. So, uh, and we don't want uh, someone who is healed from opiate addiction with psilocybin to go relapse and die. That would not be good. So what they're going to do, they're going to do a little pilot study uh, and have people taking Suboxone or buprenorphine maintenance uh, with the goal of, of seeing if we can get, uh, you know, heroin or opiate addicts. The goal would be to maintain on Suboxone and not, not uh, use them illicitly or in an abusive way. So their first trial is going to maybe get a dozen people or so who are taking Suboxone to see if they still have can have the mystical experience with psilocybin to see if suboxone, which is an opiate agonist, part agonist, to see if that inhibits the what seems to be the heating experiential part of psilocybin. So if they do have that or, or find the dose at which it is effective, um, then they can go forward treating opiate addicts in a pilot to see, you know, could it help opiate addiction? Of course, we all think it, it will. I mean, LSD, we think, has helped, helped her- addicts, you know, in the 60s and 70s and alcoholics. Um, so that's that's something on the horizon, and you know, I mean, opiate addiction. There's an epidemic, epidemic opiate addiction. Well, it's like, you know, ha- less than half the people die from opiate addiction is alcohol addiction. So alcohol addiction is like, it's so big people don't even think about it as an emergency because it's been an emergency for decades. And just last night, this is just getting in the world of total speculation. I happened to see a uh, neurosurgeon. Um, we had a sort of an event over at the Transformation, a neurosurgeon, and he works a lot of comatose patients and uh, from trauma or metabolic or all sorts of coma. And he has this, and some of them are, you know, they look like they're asleep, but there's brain activity. Like they are maybe awake or maybe they're not awake. But he has the idea, well, would psilocybin help people wake up from a coma? And if they did, wouldn't that be cool? So it's like, you know, I never thought of that before, but uh, it's just so, and he was a young, he just finished his residency, he's a young neurosurgeon, University of Texas in Austin, and and so there's, you know, because these medicines have been banned for so long, the whole, a whole generation of researchers, it just stopped, and so it's having to reboot a whole new uh, generation to start that movement on again, where the senior researchers and the young researchers and so people are having ideas, and since these medicines were banned, and they're so different from every other kind of drug and medicine, I mean, the sky's the limit of what you can imagine, you know, they might be useful for. And you never know until you do the study under the, the standard traditions of, of accepted scientific method uh, and see. And so it's just uh, unlimited, like, you know, Alzheimer's or whatever. So uh, it's just an exciting time to uh, be part of that. We've got... Five more minutes if there's any other questions. Yeah. Um, the, the National Institute of Drug Abuse spent, uh, I don't know, ten millions of dollars on Ibogaine research uh, in the 90s, I'm thinking. And a lot of it was because of protests from the addicts, you know, who found it useful. What they ran into was uh, toxic problems uh, in the cerebellum, the neurotoxicity in the cerebellum and uh, slowing down the heart rate. So they decided it's just not a safe treatment, Ibogaine. And there are obviously clinics in Mexico and other places where people go and they are healed and they don't get addicted. You know, it's, it, it cures them of their opiate addiction. So it, it obviously works and it obviously blocks withdrawal. But what's happening now, the, an analog of Ibogaine that is not psychedelic at all, uh, nor Ibogaine, is being studied to block opiate withdrawal and craving. So that's in like a for-profit drug development field. So Ibogaine did lead to that discovery. And likewise, there's a drug under development. It's a LSD analog for cluster headache that's also not psychedelic uh, that's in for-profit drug development. Bromo something LSD. Like here's electricity. What can we do with it? Let's try it for everything. You know, I mean, there's so much that could be done. Okay, well, thank you very much.
Thank you, George. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. It is really quite comforting for me to learn about how much psychedelic research is now underway in so many different parts of the world. At the beginning of this millennium, there was almost no government-approved research programs in which human subjects participated. Then, in 2004, after many years of going back and forth with the FDA to get their approval, Dr. Charlie Grove got his psilocybin end-of-life study approved. And by the way, that study was funded by the Hefter Research Institute, of which Dr. Grobe is also a co-founder. Since then, psychedelic research studies have become much more common at universities and clinics in many parts of the world, as we just heard. And based on the wide variety of studies that are now being conducted, it appears to me that this field is going to continue to grow by leaps and bounds in the years ahead. Now on the topic of psychedelics in conjunction with meditation, I want to once again point you to Myron Stolaroff's excellent essay on the topic, which is titled, Are Psychedelics Useful in the Practice of Buddhism? I've talked about that essay in previous podcasts, and so I won't repeat what I said here, but I will provide a link to it in today's program notes, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.com. And talking about the Stolaroffs, Although Myron died almost five years ago, his wife Jean is still going strong at 90. And when I called her earlier today, she told me that a couple of days ago, two women who are working on a creative project involving psychedelics came to her home in Lone Pine to learn more about the early days of psychedelic research in which she had participated. So far, Lou B. from Colorado is the only fellow saloner to write Jean a short note of appreciation for her pioneering work, but the recent visit by those two young women certainly has made up for it. Of course, you still should send Jean Soloroff a holiday card if you can. Her mailing address is Post Office Box 742, Lone Pine, California, 93545. And it would really be a wonderful thing for you to send Jean a short note or a card particularly at this time of year when we old people sometimes get a little blue. So tell her a little about yourself, because she is always looking for news about what is going on in the wonderful world of psychedelics. And whether you know it or not, you are on the front lines in one way or another. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.